Take your Bibles with me and turn them uh, to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Uh, If you need a Bible, I would love for you to have something in front of you to look at. We won't have these words up on the screen. I want you to be able to see where it's at in in, uh, God's word so that you can find it and and continue to read it and examine it together uh, later. So whether you do that on your phone or you, or you have a physical Bible in front of you, I want to encourage you to get that out. If you need one, we have black Bibles on either side of the room here. You can find uh, Revelation chapter 21 on page 1,103, okay? Or just like flip to the very back and then go back a couple pages and, and you're there, all right? Um, uh, and, and you are free to keep that Bible, uh, make that your own if you need one. On this last day of 2023, we are going to look together at the last two chapters of the last book of the Bible, and to borrow words from Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, we're going to see what it will look like when the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And as we are shown this multi-layered picture of the merging of heaven and earth, it's going to challenge us then to think about how we ought to be living on this earth until the king of heaven comes and so I know we just prayed together, but uh, because we're about to dig into this, uh, this, this word of God together, I want to ask for the Lord's help. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Pray that you would speak to us in these final words of uh, not just this book, but of, of the, the scriptures, that you would help us to be attentive, to do as you have called us to do, to hear these words and keep them and then to be blessed because we are doing that. We pray that you would help us align our hearts with Christ through your word by your spirit this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. At midnight tonight, that famous ball is gonna drop and close out 2023 and ring in 2024. Now, I don't know if you're gonna plan on staying up and watching that or not. Uh, I think the verdict is still out for me. Um, But the reality is that you can't make 2023 last any longer, right? And you can't make, uh, or or shorter actually, you can't like make the ball drop sooner. And you can't make 2024 come any sooner or any later. At the appointed time, when the end of one year comes, the beginning of the new year comes with it. And uh, we all approach this time by, by, by doing two things, right? We look back with reflection on the year that we just came through and we look forward with hope in the year that's coming, now, we might, we might look back on the previous year's hardships and regrets and then resolve to improve or remove uh, those things from our lives in the coming year, or we might look back on the previous year's joys and successes and, and, and then resolve to keep or increase those things in our lives in the coming year. Most of us probably do a little bit of both. But I think either way, what we all want in what's coming, we want that to be better than what we've already experienced than anything that we've already gone through, right? We're always looking for uh, newness in the new year. We're always looking for that fresh start. And for all who are in Christ, our passage uh, this morning holds out that hope for us and shows us this glorious reality of what is yet to come. You see, today may be New Year's Eve, but the book of Revelation and, and the entire New Testament, for that matter, shows us that we are living in the last days from the time of Jesus' resurrection until the time of his return. And that means uh, we are living in, uh, pardon the, the cheesiness, but it, I think it will help us uh, remember, we are living in new life's eve. New life's eve. 
at the appointed time when the end of this age comes and the beginning, uh, the, the beginning of e- the eternal age comes with it. And the New Testament makes it clear that the dividing line between those two ages is the return of Jesus Christ. And for all of Christ's followers, what we experience in eternity will be infinitely better than anything we have already gone through. It will be. We don't have to hope. We don't have to, we don't have to, to, to just wish that that's the case. That's the reality to come. And even though we can't make Jesus come any sooner, we can let that glorious reality of his coming fill our minds and hearts and propel us then to endure with hope even as we beckon him to come. And so here's our, our main point from our passage this morning. It's this, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon to make all things new and only those who hear and keep his words will experience the blessing of eternity with him. Jesus is coming soon to make all things new and only those who hear and keep his words will experience the blessing of eternity with him. We're gonna break these last two chapters up uh, in Revelation into three parts, okay? We're gonna look at the big picture, we're gonna look at the main point, and then we're gonna listen to the final words. Look at the big picture with me. This big picture is a picture of renewal. First eight verses in, tw- in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her, for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look. God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Praise God, amen. Because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, we're not going to spend a ton of time unpacking these verses because that's actually what the rest of the chapters do for us. That's why I'm calling this section the, the big picture because it's a sort of a flyover view of not only what's literally to come, but, but what the rest of, of Revelation uh, unfolds for us. But before we move into this more detailed picture, I think it's worth pointing a few things out here. First, just as we look backward and forward at, at New Year's Eve, this picture of new life's eve is also looking backward and forward. It's pointing to what's coming, yes, but it's using Old Testament language to do so. And in doing so, John is showing his readers how the new life in Christ to come is the ultimate fulfillment of patterns and prophecies that have already been given to us throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. We don't have time to make all the detailed connections, but these, in these final visions, that John has given, we're gonna see several layers of imagery that are all gonna blend together into one glorious reality. So I want you to to think about these things as you see them, okay? We're gonna see uh, the imagery of a marriage, which is introduced here in verse two. Then the imagery of a city, which is also introduced in verse two. The imagery of a temple, which 
which is introduced in verse 3 with God's dwelling place. The imagery of a garden, which is introduced in verse 6 with the spring of the water of life. And then the imagery of an inheritance, which is introduced as the son, God uh, calling uh, us his sons in verse 7. Now our focus is going to be on the reality that these imageries, uh, these images all point to, but I'm going to give you some Old Testament passages to write down in your Bible next to these verses, and I want to encourage you to go take time this week and read them and see all the ways that these connect to the last two chapters of Revelation and these images, okay? And if you need these again, you can, uh, uh, you can come up to me afterwards and I'll be glad to give them to you. Here they are. Genesis 1 through 3. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 60 and 61, Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, Zephaniah 3, Zechariah 14. There's no shame in going to the um, table of contents to find those, okay? I'll give them to you later, again, if you need those. Uh, Those aren't the only Old Testament passages being alluded to here in Revelation 21 and 22, but they are some of the major ones that you will see this imagery repeated. And seeing how they connect will only add then to the richness of what's being communicated here. I promise you it's worth your time to explore, okay? The words of the one seated on the throne in verse 5 ought to give us great comfort and hope. Look, I am making everything new. He's the only one that can say that and actually do it, right? This vision began with John seeing a new heaven and a new earth, but we shouldn't think of that as something that is entirely different from the heaven and the earth that we currently know. This is not a total replacement. This is a renewal, a complete renewal. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says that our bodies, when they're raised from the dead at the Lord's return, what was once corruptible will be clothed with incorruptibility. What was once mortal will be clothed with immortality. They'll still be our bodies, meaning that we'll still be able to recognize each other, but they'll be perfected bodies without sin or weakness or frailty or pain or coughing and cough drops, and right? Why? Because there will no longer be sin or weakness or frailty or pain or coughing. You name it. Our bodies won't be replaced. They'll be renewed to become what they were always meant to be. The same is true for the new heaven and the new earth. Everything that's corrupting or corruptible will pass away. It will be purified by fire. That's what Peter was talking about in the passage we read for our prayer time. And all the dross will be removed so that what's left is nothing but absolute holiness, righteousness, perfection. This will be the place where righteousness dwells as Peter says. Now, heaven's already like that, right? We don't need to replace heaven. So what does it mean for heaven to be renewed along with the earth? Well, we typically think of heaven as up there and the earth as down here, but the Bible is less concerned about the direction of each place and more concerned with the division between them. Throughout the book of Revelation, John has seen heaven opened, right? In other words, the curtain has been pulled back so that he can see the reality, the current reality that has been unseen, that remains unseen. Right now, all around us is an unseen and uncorrupted realm where righteousness dwells, but it's veiled because the the realm that we can see, I don't know if you know this or not, but it's corrupted, right? 
It, it, it's, it's corrupted by the curse of sin and death. The two realms are incompatible with one another. They're divided like the most holy place in the temple was separated from everything else by a curtain that kept anything uh, unclean from entering it. But one day, on that day, all of that will change forever when the earth is purged of sin, of death, of grief, of crying, of pain, listen, of the curse. And heaven and earth will merge together in one glorious realm where righteousness dwells. God's dwelling will be with humanity and he will live with them. We were already told this. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. What was lost in the Garden of Eden will be renewed and expanded in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, before we move on, I wanna quickly point out one last thing here because this may be bugging you like it has bugged me as I've read through these verses. You may have noticed in verse one that John mentioned that the sea was no more. And then you're like, what's up with all the whales then, right? Where are they gonna be? And all the other marine life. We need to remember, though, that this, this whole book is primarily uh, deals in symbolism, right? This, and, and so this vision itself is primarily a symbolic vision. Throughout Revelation and much of the rest of the Bible, the, the literal sea, it's, it's there, it's real, it's a literal sea, but it also becomes a metaphor for chaos and evil and turmoil and danger. Just think with me for a minute about being stranded out in the middle of the ocean and you'll understand, Right? Anybody wish like that could happen to you? I didn't think so. The Israelites were trapped by the Red Sea as Egypt's army pursued them until God parted the waters and enabled them to walk safely through on dry ground. Jesus' disciples got caught in a raging storm. Where? On the Sea of Galilee and, and thought that they were gonna die until Jesus stood up, woke up from his nap and calmed the wind and the waves. The sea is the home of the beast in Revelation chapter 13. But when John saw the throne room in heaven, in chapter four, there was something like a sea of glass that surrounded the throne. So when John says that the sea will be no more, he's not necessarily talking about a world with no more huge bodies of water. Like I'm planning on swimming next to a blue whale. I don't know about you. He's talking about a world with no more chaos, no more evil, no more turmoil, no more danger, a world where there will be no more raging seas only seas of glass, only peace. In other words, if there are still seas and oceans in the new heaven and new earth, you will be able to swim in the middle of them without any fear because you'll be surrounded by nothing but righteousness. It's the place where righteousness dwells. And that'll happen when Jesus, who is our peace, as Paul puts it, comes to dwell with his people forever. And that leads us to the main point. The big picture may be renewal, but the main point of that renewal is reunion. Look at, with me at verses 9 through 11, chapter 21. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, the wording here is almost identical to the opening verses of chapter 17, if you remember, except there, one of the seven angels with the seven bowls told John, come, 
I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute. Here, the angel will show John the, excuse me, the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. When the angel showed John the prostitute, he carried John away in the spirit, do you remember, to a wilderness Wilderness is a place of spiritual desolation where sin runs rampant and God's enemies persecute God's people. But here, the angel carries, or, or the, uh, the, the angel carried John away in the spirit to a great high mountain, which is a place of protection for God's people from sin and from God's enemies. We saw this high mountain in chapter 14, Mount Zion, where the people of God were standing with Jesus. And here on this mountain, the angel who told John, I will show you the bride shows John the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory, or as verse two put it for us, prepared like a bride for her husband, adorned for her husband. This is a good reminder that in the book of Revelation, John often hears one thing and then turns around and sees something else. But what he sees does not con uh, conflict with what he hears. It clarifies it by emphasizing a particular aspect of it. Like back in chapter five, when John heard that the lion of Judah was worthy to open the scroll, but then he turned around and what did he see? One that, well, like a son of man, like a slaughtered, standing there like a slaughtered lamb, right? And that slaughtered lamb was worthy to open this scroll because he conquered sin and death by offering himself sacrificially in the place of his people, so how does the imagery of the holy city, Jerusalem, help clarify the imagery of the marriage between Jesus and his bride? Well, we need to keep reading to see that. Look at verse 12. We're gonna go through 21 here. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. <coughs> Excuse me. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There, there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are all equal. And then he measured its wall, 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city were, were adorned with every kind of jewel, and I'm not going to read them for you because um, I will butcher them, but you can read them, okay? Jump down to verse 21. The tw there's 12 of them. Just remember that. The 12 gates are 12 pearls, and each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Excuse me. Now, there's a lot of details right here that we just read that we can get lost in. So let's, let's just take a minute and orient ourselves with this image. The imagery of the bride of Christ arrayed in God's glory is being overlaid here with the imagery of the holy city being adorned with every kind of jewel. It stands in stark contrast with the imagery of Babylon the Great, the unholy city that was pictured for us in chapter 17 and 18 as a prostitute. But how was she dressed? Do you remember? in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned, it says, with gold and jewels and pearls. But we need to remember that the prostitute is a forgery of the real thing, right? 
She's a corrupt counterfeit of the purified bride. But what is the point of describing the purified bride this way? Well, it's helpful to remember that numbers are primarily used symbolically in the book of Revelation, and the number 12 in particular is used to speak of completion in reference to the community of faithful followers of Christ. It speaks to the completely perfect unity and uh, diversity of God's people. In these two chapters, the number 12 is mentioned 12 times to emphasize the completeness of the completeness, okay? Even the measurements of the city are, 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 um, are multiples of 12, right? 12,000 stadia, 144 uh, cubits. But the measurement in, in verse 16 is the one that we need to pay attention to because it points to the main point of all these other details. There's only one other place in the Bible where a perfect cube is described in detail, and it's in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20. And there it describes the dimensions of the most holy place in the temple. A 30 foot by 30 foot by 30 foot uh, cube overlaid completely with pure gold. It's the place where God's presence dwelled on earth. Now the angel started this vision by telling John that he was going to show him the bride. And then what John saw was, uh, saw that the bride was the holy city, Jerusalem. And now what he sees is that this holy city is actually a temple. Layers of images here. The angel has layered these images together to tell John and us something about the nature of God's relationship with his people in the eternal age to come. These aren't measurements of a literal city coming down out of heaven. These are measurements that show that in the new heaven and the new earth, when God comes to dwell with his people, the entire earth will become the most holy place. Because it will not only be full of God's heavenly glory. Listen, it will be full of God's holy people. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain that separated that little 30 foot by 30 foot by 30 foot cube from the, in the temple from everything else, you know what happened to that curtain? It was torn in two. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of everyone who entrusts themselves to Christ by faith. That means that God's presence is no longer limited to that cube in a physical temple because he now dwells spiritually with every one of his people. We have become the most holy place. And I immediately recognize that as grace when I think about how much I feel prone to wander, like we sang this morning. When the new heaven and the new earth come, God's presence won't be limited to a 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia city with a wall that's 144 cubits high. And he won't just dwell in his people spiritually. His physical dwelling will be with humanity, people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation, a completely perfect unity and diversity of God's people spread all over the earth with unhindered access to God. The 12 jewels listed here allude to the descriptions of the Garden of Eden in Ezekiel chapter 28 and of the restored Jerusalem in Isaiah 54 and they're reminiscent of the gemstones that were on the breastplate that the high priest wore when he ministered in the temple. Now he was only allowed to enter the most holy place once a year to make atonement for the sins of the, of the people. Leviticus 
Uh, the book of Levit Leviticus tells us that. But our great high priest, Jesus Christ, entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, to obtain eternal redemption for everyone who puts their faith in him. And he's made us a kingdom of priests who will stand in God's presence, listen, not once a year, but for all eternity, forever and ever. We will be his peoples and God himself will be with us and will be our God. You know what that means? That means we, we won't just sit around here talking about this. We will experience it in all of its fullness. And not it, him. We will see him face to face. 12 gates on the four sides of the city wall show us that people from every direction, every corner of the earth will be God's people. His bride, his holy city, his most holy place. That means that there are not separate destinies for Israel and the church. The names of the 12 tribes on Israel's, of Israel on the gates and the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus on the foundations show us that there is one united community of God's people and all of God's people have come into that community through faith in Jesus Christ who just so happened to call himself the gate in John 10. Do you remember that? He's the only way to the Father. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. For through him, we both, that's Israelites and non-Israelites, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. So this bride city temple imagery is a picture of the reunion between God and humanity, of the reunion between heaven and earth. It's a reunion of all that was lost in the Garden of Eden when humanity's sinful rebellion against God led to acts of spiritual adultery led to the building of unholy cities that make names for themselves and attempt to dethrone God and led to the worship of false gods in temples all over the world. Bride city temple. It's a reunion that only happens by grace and only comes through Jesus Christ. The faithful bridegroom who pursued his wayward wife the architect and the builder of the heavenly city, the chief cornerstone of the new temple. Let's keep reading verse 22 into verse five of chapter 22. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the, of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river. <coughs> Excuse me. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit. <coughs> Time out. I need a drink from that river right now. 
The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing, of, uh, for healing the nations, and there will, be no longer, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of, a sun, of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Throughout the whole book of Revelation, time and time again, John says, then I saw, then I saw, then I saw. But did you catch what he said here? Here we get to see, or here he says what he didn't see, right? He didn't see a temple in the city. There's not a need for one because the Lord God and the Almighty and the lamp and the Lamb are its temple. There's also no need for light from the sun or the moon because the glory of God, listen, the glory of God gives off plenty of light, right? And the Lamb is the lamp that shines God's glory on God's people. And with that much glorious light, there will never be darkness again. Evil people love to do evil things under the cover of darkness, right? Jesus told that to Nicodemus in, chap- in John chapter 3. In John's day, cities had walls and gates that could be closed and locked up to keep enemies out at night. But the gates of this holy city, yeah, they're gates, but they will never close. Why? Because the lamb who lives there is the gatekeeper. And only the pla- the, those who, whose names are written in his book of life will be allowed to enter that place where righteousness dwells. It will be a place of total and eternal security of peace for all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. After Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God placed a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the entrance and keep humanity out. They couldn't be allowed to eat from the tree of life in their sinful state. But then what did God do? God himself entered the sinful world as a sinless man to to offer himself as the bread of life and the living water, promising that everyone who comes to him will never be hungry and never be thirsty again. And here we see that promise fulfilled. But this is more than a return to the Garden of Eden. This is is an entry into a renewed and expanded garden, one that covers the entire earth, what it was always meant to be in the first place. And in the middle of this garden... At the very center of everything is the heavenly throne of God and the Lamb, Jesus Christ. The river of living waters flowing from that throne because Christ himself is the source of life. And the tree of life is no longer a tree in the middle of the garden, but stretched out on both sides of the river producing 12 kinds of fruit. It's a picture of complete satisfaction and provision in Christ for his people. Listen, there's no forbidden fruit here. Only Christ telling his people to take and eat. The healing leaves of this tree are a symbol of complete physical and spiritual restoration, not only for God's people, but for all of God's creation that's been groaning with labor pains and eagerly waiting with anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. And verse three of chapter 22 gives us the reason why this healing happens, because there will be no longer any curse. We sang Joy to the World last week. You know that's not a Christmas song. It was never meant to be, but we sing it at Christmas. I love that the, the line that says, uh, uh, no, I literally can't think of it. Tell me. 
No, no more let sin and sorrow grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. There it is. Far as the curse is found. There will be no more curse. There will only be God, the lamb on their throne at the center of it all, and Christ's servants worshiping him forever and ever. And this is the point where we get to let our sanctified imaginations run wild when we think about what that will look like. Worship will certainly include singing, yes, and it will be glorious, but we didn't just stop worship when we stopped singing this morning, right? We also worship Jesus now by serving him with our lives. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them right now. And here's what we need to know. We will be walking worshipers in the eternity to come. In John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Here, we're told that the nations will walk by the light of the city. Who is the light of the city? Christ himself, right? He's the glory of God. We're also told that all the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city. Now, we know from earlier verses that this isn't a literal city, but a symbolic one that points to the whole earth as God's dwelling place with his people. And we know that nothing unclean will ever enter this renewed earth, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. So the kings of the earth here have to be believers. They have to be believers. They can't be the wicked kings mentioned earlier in Revelation. But if we think about it, this makes sense when we remember that the heavenly beings, what they sang about Jesus in chapter 5, in the throne room, by the way. They said, you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe, every language, every people and nation. You made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign on the earth, on the earth. That means that as followers of Christ, we, we are the kings of the earth who will walk by the light of the city and bring our glory into it and reign forever and ever with the king. So what will that look like then for us to bring our glory into the city? Well, think with me for just a minute about all the different cultures of the world, all the different cuisines and artwork and music and engineering marvels and technologies and landscapes and wildlife and tools and customs and clothing and decorations and everything else that amazes you about each people group. If those things are that amazing now, while they're done imperfectly and most often selfishly, imagine how incredible it will be when all of those things are brought in line with God's purposes and done perfectly for his glory as acts of worship by his servants. When man is no longer at the center of those things, but Jesus Christ is at the center of those things. When all those things are no longer found in a sinful and broken world, but in a renewed earth that has become one with heaven. But as much as we'll enjoy partaking of and participating in those things to the glory of God, the, the thing that we will enjoy the most is not a thing at all. It's a person. It's Jesus will never cease to be amazed by our Savior and his glorious grace as we gaze upon his glorious face for all eternity. We get to see him and be with him 
Because at the center of this reunion between God and humanity, between heaven and earth, is our union with Jesus Christ. He is what makes eternity more incredible than anything we could ever imagine or ask. If the main point of this vision is reunion between God and man, then Jesus is the main point of that reunion. Why? Because Jesus is the main point of everything. He's it. Because Christ or because of Christ, even now, while we live in this new life's eve, we get to start living that new life in Christ. Why? Because we're told in first, or 2 Corinthians 5, if anybody's in Christ, what are you? A new creation. Behold, I'm making all things new. And guess what? I've already started. That's what Jesus, you are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. And then we're told to live like that we don't always remember that we are already a royal priesthood and a holy nation a people for his own possession proclaiming the praises of the one who called us out of darkness to walk in his marvelous light to walk by the light of the city and the king who dwells there and there are scores of people in this world who have yet to see that light we get to experience that reality in all of its fullness for all of eternity, but there are still people here who are walking in darkness, in sin, in death. So we need to hear these final words. These final words of revelation and of the whole Bible are words of reminder that require a response from everyone. Look at verse six. And then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. Look, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest to these things to you for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now there's nothing new, brand new in these final words, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing important in these final words, Right? Last words are lasting words. And these final words are reminders of all that has already been said in this book. And these words are faithful and true. Why? Because they come from the one who is faithful and true. The root and descendant of David, who's the king from Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. The bright morning star who promised back in chapter 2, verse 28, that he would give himself as that bright morning star to the one who conquers and keeps his works to the end. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Jesus reminds John that he sent his angel to attest to these faithful and true words in order to show John what must soon take place. And here at the end of the book, Jesus, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, reminds John and us of the blessing that he pronounced at the beginning of the book. You remember? Blessed is the one who hears the words written here and keeps them. But notice another important reminder in verse 14. We have to know this. Jesus doesn't say that our obedience to him is what gives us entrance into the city and the right to eat from the tree of life. Those things are only granted to those who have experienced the blessing of being washed by the blood of Christ and clothed in his righteousness. Salvation is granted to us by God's grace through faith in Jesus. We don't earn it by any of our works, but our works ultimately reveal whether or not our hearts have truly been washed by Jesus. And when he comes, our hearts will be laid bare. And he will repay every one of us what he has rightly determined that we are due. Those who go on in unrighteousness until he comes will be repaid with his righteous wrath for all eternity. But those who go on in his righteousness until he comes will be repaid with the blessing of eternal life with him and share in his inheritance forever. Back in verse seven of chapter 21, the one seated on the throne said, to the one who conquers, he will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Sonship and inheritance always go together in the Bible. In Romans 8, the apostle Paul says that those, all those led by God's spirit are God's sons and the spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are God's children, then we are also heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. You see, suffering for the sake of Christ is a work that reveals a heart that has been washed by Christ. That's why Revelation ends with the reminder of our need to conquer. The reminder that it's been telling us the whole time. Don't compromise with the world. Endure suffering for, uh, from the world for the sake of Christ because of your union with Christ. There's a glorious inheritance waiting for all who do. And the most glorious part of that inheritance is not the things, whatever those will be. It's Christ himself. Sing another song here, and we'll never grow tired of singing it. These words that Christ is mine forevermore, right? But for the cowards, the faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, and everyone who loves to practice falsehood, their share, their inheritance will be the second death under the burning fire of God's righteous judgment forever. They'll be like dogs that remain outside the city because nothing unclean will ever enter it. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know that, that time is short. Time is short. When the prophet Daniel was shown visions of the last days, he was told to seal up the book until the time of the end because it wasn't coming yet. Did you notice what the angel said to John here? Don't seal up the words of this book because the end is near. The time is near. Twice in these verses, Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. And he'll say it one more time in verse 20. We're living in new life's eve. At the appointed time when the end of this age comes, the beginning of the eternal age comes with it. And a dividing line between those two ages is the return of Jesus Christ. And when he comes, it will be too late to change your mind about him. 
You can't make this age last any longer and you can't make Jesus come any later. But here's the glorious news of the gospel. You can come to Jesus now. You can come to Jesus now. Let's finish up 17 through 21. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life in the holy city, which are written about in this book. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. And we've just heard from the angel and from John and from Jesus, and now we get to hear from the spirit and the bride. And what do they say? Come. Come. Come to Jesus Christ. He has offered freely the water of life to all who are thirsty for him. And if you come, listen, he has promised that you will never thirst again. Why? Because Christ is life. When he came the first time, he, gave, he came to give his life as a ransom for sinners who deserve God's wrath. He lived a perfectly righteous life of obedience to the Father, and yet the Lamb, who is the lamp, endured the darkness of grief and crying and pain and chaos and evil and turmoil and danger and death. The Son of God bore the curse of sin and the wrath of the Father on the cross so that he could share freely his inheritance with all who put their trust in him, and he secured our eternity with God by rising from the dead and returning to the Father. And he's coming soon for his bride. And this is the beautiful news. You can be that bride. You can be that bride if you entrust yourself to him. So why not then turn from your unrighteousness and receive his righteousness by faith? Everyone in this room who is following Christ, has done that. No one gets around that. Confess your sin, receive his forgiveness, and commit yourself to this glorious bridegroom. There's none like him. As his bride, we must remember that all the words of this book are gospel words. To add to them or to take away from them is to change this gospel that's been presented to us in its fullness. Instead, while we wait for and beckon Christ to come to us, we go out and share this gospel with those around us as we beckon them to come to Christ. And while we do that, or we do that while we hear and keep these faithful and true words of our bridegroom until he comes. See, we're living in new life's eve. Jesus is coming soon to make all things new and only those who hear and keep his words will experience the blessing of eternity with him. This calls for faithful endurance from the saints and all who are in Christ now and more, are, are more than conquerors, as Paul puts it. And we will endure to the end because we're held in Christ's hand and nobody can snatch us out of it. That doesn't mean we don't also have to endure. But our fellow servant John knows how deeply we need God's grace in order to do that. And so he closes out the book of Revelation and the entire Bible by praying for this grace that we so desperately need from Jesus in order to conquer while we wait for Jesus. So hear these final words of our bridegroom. Yes, I'm coming soon. Coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. 
May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this book of Revelation that has pulled back the curtain for us and helps us actually better help each other connect the realities of the gospel to the realities of our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to no longer live for ourselves, but for our King who died for us, who was raised for us, and who is coming again for us. And that in your grace, you would allow us to display your glory as we proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world in darkness that they might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and be saved. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.